Hello and welcome to the Football Psychology Show. My name is John Nasori and this week I'm joined as ever by my co-host Luke Chiverton. Hi John. Hi Luke. And two guests we're really excited about talking to. Back for a second time, we're delighted to be joined by former England women's team psychologist Dr Mita Jervis. Hi, lovely to be here again. And making his football psychology show debut, it's our pleasure to welcome Everton's former Director of Medical Services, Danny Donerkey. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'm really excited. Misha, welcome back to the podcast. Um, I think we last had you on about 18 months ago in the midst of kind of lockdown and all of that doom and gloom. And I think at the time you were doing some really interesting stuff around kind of sending videos out to players who were isolating. What's keeping you busy at the moment? So yes, that feels like a lifetime ago. Um, So since then, I've been appointed as the uh, sports psychologist for Wickham Wanderers. So I'm now officially working with them. I was working sort of slightly more removed then, but now I'm immersed and embedded. And we've had an interesting season in the championship. I'm navigating through that. So lots of learning from those experiences. And I guess the other thing I've been doing, although it's not football, is... um, Actually, about 18 months ago, a big scandal kind of broke in terms of abuse in in British gymnastics following the revelations of what was happening in American gymnastics. So since then, I've been working with the British Athlete Commission to deliver online therapy um, for abused gymnasts, which is a piece of work that um, I'm super proud of, actually, Um, the fact that we've been actually able to do this. And, And it's one of those weird kind of wins from lockdown which is probably before that I wouldn't have thought about doing online therapy and online group therapy. Um, But we've been doing that for a year now and have have worked with over 88 athletes and uh, using online platforms really, really successfully. So that's, that's been a good bit of work I've been doing. Fantastic. And would would really kind of recommend that, that listeners check that, check that out. And and Danny, it's it's a it's a football psychology show debut. How are you feeling? Kind of you, you said excited with a very deadpan expression. <laughs> <laughs> excited and nervous. No, I'm I'm feeling good. Um, I am chilling out basically at the moment. So I left my job about three weeks ago, and I, I'd been in that role, which was director of medical services, for a long time, probably you know nearly twenty years. And anyone who works in football knows that it's full on. And it's more or less seven days a week, even on holiday, you're answering the phone. So it's nice just to have a little bit of time and space just to to reevaluate and see where I'm at. Um, and you might wonder why I'm on a football psychology podcast. You might not because you invited me, but uh, the listeners might. Um, so I was a physio originally. And over the past few years, I've, I've finished the master's at the Tavistock um, and learned a lot about group dynamics. And I'm now um, studying at the Institute of Group Analysis. So um, I'm really interested in groups and psychology and, and how to motivate teams. You've come to the dark side, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> and Danny, I, th- I think it's, it's also fair to say that kind of during your dealings with, with kind of various players as well, there, there's kind of been an element of of kind of working with them on a very, very personal level. I, I think that's fair to say, you know, it's obviously slightly kind of separated from the discipline of psychology, but you're, you're kind of getting to know them in quite a personal way. Yeah, yeah. I'm interested in speaking to Misha about her role at Wickham, actually, um, because it's a very um, interesting thing to navigate, you know, psychologists in football, because it's probably one of the the, the most resistant sports to psychology, And my experience was that, you know, in my role as a physio or head of medical, you you get a lot of contact with the players. You're very close to them. So they're open to uh, working with you in that way. Whereas there's a stigma about working with psychologists in football. And I think that's something that needs to be improved. Um, But because of that, I realized that I was in a a very responsible position and and realized that I needed to upskill myself. Um, So so I've learned many things over the years to try and help the players as much as possible. And and it started really through, I started through sort of mind body techniques, where I, I realized that, you know, people hold trauma in their bodies. And if you can help them release that trauma, it's, it's normally an emotional element, then it not only improves their performance, but their whole lives. And uh, as we all know, footballers and athletes, they're, they're human beings beyond uh, above footballers. So you have to approach them in that way. 
And when you do that, you, the, the results are, are far greater. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think what you say is, um, is, is absolutely true. And it's interesting. We've just done a new bit of research where we've looked at something called emotion mapping, whereby we asked injured players about the emotions that they experienced in the different places that they live in terms of rehabilitation. So in the gym, on the pitch, in the physio room, um, in the canteen, in those different spaces that they have to navigate through. And interestingly, the physio room was the most difficult emotional space to to navigate. Um, And it came with a lot of um, anger, a lot of frustration, as well as as well as that feeling of support. So it was quite a conflicted space to live in. And I think partly that is because the the physio room is often a very open and public space. And so you'll have fit players coming in talking about, yeah, I played the game yesterday. It was great. Wasn't it fabulous? Sort of alongside players who, who might be out for months on end. So it's quite a hard space to navigate through. And certainly for me as a psychologist, that was really important to understand, okay, how you have conversations and where you have conversations. Um, So relating those two things together was important. Something else that's come out um, is is a book on athlete well-being. And and I wrote a chapter in there about the return, what I call the return protocol. And the return protocol is about how you work collaboratively with physios, with S&C people, along that journey. Um, and it's a, it was a project that I did um, at QPR. And the chapter details the physio perspective, the S&C perspective, as well as my perspective. So it's about how I learn from them and how they learn from me. So how, you know, we, we have to work collaboratively, I think. Um, and certainly the work I'm doing at Wickham is exactly that. So it's not that I'm doing this thing over here and the physios are doing this thing over there. Actually, the conversations are player, physio, me, sometimes me, player, sometimes physio, player. Some, do you know what I mean? So it's like you have, to, you have to create those different partnerships. And one of the things that I absolutely said when I started working at Wickham was I have to work with injured players because for me it's an absolute priority because I know from all of the research but also all of my experiences and the work that I've done that navigating injury is one of the most psychologically challenging things. And players need support and understanding. That kind of phase two of recovery, Daniel, and you'll know about this because you've lived this a hundred times, where players are, you know, they're they're not able to do very much. They're often had that sense of isolation. So that is a place of vulnerability for, you know, depression, anxiety. But later on in the recovery, Um, when they're making that transition from the gym to the pitch, fear of re-injury just goes, hi, I'm just here to mess with you. And if you don't talk about it, understand it, understand how the mind works to protect the body, then what happens is you have muscle guarding, you have changes in movements, all of these things show up, which then means that you're more likely to get injured again. So understanding that the psychological journey changes in the same way that the physical journey changes. And I think that anyone who's working with an athlete, and I think the athlete themselves needs to understand that. We have to empower them with knowledge so that they they understand what's happening and they can make sense of it. I think um, I've just got a quick example of the impact that injury can have on the psyche. Um, And it's very recent for me in, in a way. So when I was uh, a young man uh, from from childhood, my my dad was a footballer. So all I wanted to do was be a footballer. You know, it was my whole dream. So when I was about 22, I had an injury. And because the timing and the type of injury, I knew it was the end of my career. So that whole day I, I spent in bed and just crying and crying. It was the end. I knew it was the end. But the interesting part and, and the, the impact it's had on my psyche is that two days ago I had a dream. And so this is nearly 30 years from that point, 30 years later. And in the dream, um, I, was playing, I was playing for Man United against Man City. I came on as sub and it was one of the happiest moments of my life. Um, and I got injured in the game uh-huh. and I came, I came off um, and I didn't realize how severe it was at the point. Um, but over time, it became more and more, um, I, I realized that it was kind of career ending. Um, you know, so 30 years later, I don't even play football now. 
um, to have that imprint on my psyche, it just shows the, the, the massive power that injury can have. Yeah, so it's like you're still holding on to the trauma, really, aren't you? Exactly, yeah. And, and, that, and that trauma never gets spoken about or it, it, the spaces that we create where people can go, yeah, I'm scared, you know. Yes, I understand this. It's like um, if if we if we don't do that, and and again, it, it it speaks to the kind of the culture of the environment that you worked in. And, and Daniel, you interestingly you said that there's stigma about sports psychologists. Well, only if it's created by people, because it, it, literally at Wickham there is absolutely no stigma. It's just I'm just part of the furniture, like anybody else is. And but that is really down to the people who are who are enabling me to do that you know um gareth ainsworth and particularly richard dobson you know who actually um really value what i do um and therefore if i'm talking to someone it's it's no biggie it's just what i do but sometimes those barriers are put up by people who who don't want us in the room with them. And sometimes those people who don't want us in the room with them are physios. I've certainly encountered that as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I know we're going slightly off topic and I will come back to it, but just to uh, reply to that, you you were speaking about collaboration mm-hmm. and, um, you know, it's, it's a huge problem in football. Everyone, you know, and people, there's all different professions and people identify with their own profession and yep. see, see through that lens. Um, and, unless there's somebody there who can kind of bring them all together and allow people to express their opinions, um, it creates a lot of tension and, and problems in clubs. And, and it's very rare that you have um, multidisciplinary teams that work um, coherently and well. I think, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And, and I guess it's like when we look at how we train coaches and how we train psychologists and how we train physios, we do it in silos. And we don't ever do things whereby we go, okay, you need to learn about how to collaborate with people because, because we do. We, we, we need those connections if we're to um, change the landscape, really. But we don't get trained how to do that. <laughs> it's, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because in some ways, that's a challenge which exists in every environment. So, you know, I've worked in corporate environments where the lawyers in the room, the accountants in the room, they're all their own profession and they're coming at something from their own angle. And, and I think it's it's a classic thing, isn't it? The best organisations are the ones that kind of get those people working together and talking a common language to achieve a common goal. And it must be exactly the same in a football environment with all those different professions that are kind of contributing to the output. Yeah, definitely so. And it's um, in, in football more recently as well, it, it's even more complex because more often than not in the in the Premier League, at least, a manager will bring in, say, four or five of his own staff, maybe even seven or eight. They'll, they'll all speak a different language. Um, they'll have their own silo um, and, and it creates all kinds of dysfunctions in, in the team. And then obviously that's going to transfer to the playing team as well, yep. because ultimately the, you know, the, these are the staff who spend the most time with players and, and dialogue with players. So if there's, if there's a disconnect in, in the, in the staff, it's going to spread to the whole team and organization. Yeah, I agree. And also they're often operating from a kind of, you know, it's a, it's a threat-based organisation and everyone's in a state of threat. Um, yeah. And then when you have all of that threat, it, it leaks into everything else. And as we, as we know, you know, threat in terms of how we navigate through our lives, it messes up, it messes up our hormonal system, it messes up our psychological system, it messes up everything. You, you, you literally can't survive in a threat state for very long without it all going pear-shaped. Well, we've segued perfectly there onto our first topic, <laughs> which, is, which is Manchester United. So Oli Gunnar Solskjaer has finally departed. Uh, and as we're recording, I think it's, it's, it's pretty much on the verge of being confirmed that Ralph Ranić will, will take interim charge. But, but guys, from a, a psychological point of view, Solskjaer kind of basically paid the price for, for not being able to arrest a, a poor run of, of results. The, the kind of question is, I suppose, what, what can managers actually do from a psychological point of view to, to stop those poor run of results? I'm sure Misha's got a lot of uh, different ideas and, and 
for for the number of times that people are in a poor run there's there's a, like there's unlimited solutions but what one of the ones i was thinking was um you know beyond in, in his work with groups he he spoke about three different uh, basic assumption groups and one is fight or flight so um you can you can somehow create a fight or flight energy in the group and one way of doing that that i've seen with with managers is you you play the video and you kind of um you're honest and you're direct with the players for the mistakes they've made uh, in front of the whole group. And that can create a whole lot of um, fight or flight energy. And and it's difficult for the manager who does that because he has to take the projections from the team and he has to be able to live with that. And not every manager that I've worked with is capable of, capable of doing it. Um, but that's one method um, that, that can work. And, in, in these times, it's more challenging because, you know, there's so many different cultures. The language isn't um, easy for the players. Some of them don't understand. But I feel like if you've got a good connection with the manager and you trust the manager, then you, you can still use that tactic. And I think I think it's important for all managers to have a range of responses so they can use that. And then they're obviously going to be close to the players as well. Uh, what are your thoughts, Misha? I think, again, it's like, it's almost as if we need to kind of describe football clubs as, as frontline organisations where there's constant threat to players and staff. And what you're talking about in terms of flight and fight is is a, a consequence of threat. So, you know, we know things like that there's a lot of instability, there's lots and lots of public scrutiny, Um And when we have a low tolerance of uncertainty, then fear comes, worry comes, anxiety, all of these things. And and the kind of consequence of that in terms of the culture is that we start to not trust people. Um, We are our judgment and our decision making changes. Sometimes difficult emotions are going to show up and we're not good at communicating them. And then all of those feelings of uncertainty it, it, it kind of creates this, this spiral whereby we're, we're having to navigate through all of this stuff under a public eye, under a public scrutiny. So the, the challenge is, <laughs> the challenge is how do you create within the inner circle, if you like, of the players, the staff that work with them most closely, feelings of trust, feelings of um, connectiveness, feelings of we. Um, and, it, and it's interesting, you know, you spoke about when when the players stop playing for the manager. Why should they play for the manager, by the way? Why isn't it a we? Why isn't it a collective? And um, some of those notions whereby you guys in the media, you fan these flames, you know, people have a, a, a poor game on Saturday and there's this whole narrative around, oh, well, they're going to get it on Monday morning. Like they need to be punished, you know, and, and, and I know you're laughing, but, but really, you know, if you didn't have a good day at the office, would you expect to be punished? But somehow we think that that's what footballers should expect. Well, that's no way to treat a human being. And so creating cultures and working on the culture um, I think is important and I'm not sure and Daniel you'll know this because you've probably worked with loads of managers that when managers are there for a nanosecond it's really really hard for them to be able to do that where is the work that gets put in to the culture of the place well you know when it's like in out in out it's super hard to do and who are the who are the architects of the culture who are the gatekeepers and who are the creators of that culture? And, and what does that look like and say? So if you think about Alex Ferguson, well, he created the culture because he had time to do so. He was there for a long enough period to create something that was meaningful. You, you can't do it in six months. You, you literally can't. Um, everyone is just about figuring out what the, those new relationships are. So how do, how do people outside of football manage their expectations of what happens in it? You know, and if they, if they think about what happens in, in other contexts, you know, are they able to, to do that? You know, it's, it's, it's complicated enough. Um, but I think in terms of how you navigate through difficult situations, and I, and I will talk about, I will talk about uh, Wickham here. So 
the first seven games we lost in the championship. And before we went into the championship, we did a development day around understanding what the journey was because it was new. Wickham had never been there before. It's like brave new world. How do we do it? We kind of use Cook's ships as a metaphor for the journey. So it was about endeavor. It was about adventure. All of these things, we anchored it in that place. And then we lost like seven games in a row. Bam, 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 bam. So I'm going, I, I, I feel threat. I'm feeling threat. So I pulled all the staff in and we did a session on threat. And we did a session on how we were creating a threat environment, how we were leaking our anxiety into the playing environment how we were doing these things. And, you know, and the manager was there and he was as open as anyone else. And we, we all owned what we've been doing. And, uh, and then we changed. <laughs> and then we did something different. Um, and did we have a roller coaster ride in the championship? Absolutely. But if you came into the place on a Monday, following a loss on the Saturday, there was still connection. There was still acceptance of each other there was no scapegoating there was no blame game there was a belief that we were on this journey together and we were learning things so it was about okay what did that teach us rather than judgment and you messed up and this wasn't right and all the rest of it if you if you step away from that and and again this is kind of the narrative that we we've tried to carry on it's like when you're looking at games rather than going you messed up because actually I'm just, I'm angry. So I'm just going to dump my anger on you. Can we go, all right, where are the fixes? Find the fixes. What has this taught us? Okay, well, this has taught us we need to do this, this, and this. And so how you have those conversations and how you navigate through difficult times is really, really important. And I think, yeah, I think think that that journey last year, um, we could have been in a permanent state of threat because we weren't winning games, but we weren't. We absolutely weren't because we looked at it after that first period. And basically I'm going, yeah, I think we've got to do something about this. <laughs> and, but everyone was open and on board and willing. And, you know, as a staff, as a collective, we asked ourselves difficult questions. Misha, we had Gareth Ainsworth on the show uh, with Richard, actually. And um, he said, he, he said of that moment that you were talking about, he said, we, you know, we'd lost the first seven games. We're bottom of the championship for quite a long period of time on the back of that on a run. And he said, if you'd come into training on Monday, you'd have thought we were pushing for the, you know, we're in the playoffs or pushing for automatic promotion because of the culture around the club. And I think you make a really interesting point there, which is letting the feeling of threat kind of seep into the playing group. That's, I guess, going back to that Manchester United example, lots of people kind of reflected on the fact that the players looked kind of demotivated and, and low on energy. Sure. That must be a consequence of the role models around the club kind of looking worried about the situation and that kind of seeps into everybody else's mentality, yeah. doesn't it? So, But the, the, the difference is, is at Wickham, I said, I think there's a problem. I want to do something about it and was allowed to do it. <laughs> yeah. Which comes back to the culture, um, yeah. which, and also that's interesting as well because the, the other thing you said, you know, there is that old adage that the people that want to you know, have a go at a club, they're always like, oh, the players have stopped playing for the manager. That's that old football saying, isn't it? Which is you know, not really based on anything. Um, but actually, like you said, you know, play, the players shouldn't be playing for the manager if they're bought into the culture of the whole club. Exactly. That's what that's what they're playing for, and it's actually yeah. not. You know, if you're playing to protect the job of an individual, that's automatically a threat situation, right? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the work that we do is on values. What, 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 are, what are our values and, and how do we live our values rather than going, oh, here are some nice values. We'll put them on the wall. It's like, well, hang on a minute. How do I know you're living your value? And I speak to players in those terms. It's like, well, you know, we say we have the value of family, you know, and that's a powerful, it's about connecting and caring for people. Well, h- how do we live that? Well, we live that in how we support each other. We live that in how we navigate through difficult things. We live that in all of those things. And then when you walk through the door, you feel it and you are treated differently and things become different. It's, it's hard to do with a really big, large, complicated organisation. And, and obviously Wickham is a much smaller place, um, but 
there are core principles here that can be used. <laughs> Just picking up on that point, Misha, actually, I mean, I suppose that that the, the situation at Wickham is, it is fairly unique because Richard and Gareth have, have now been there for 12 years, 13 yep. years. You know, that 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 is a unique situation, longest serving manager of in, in the Football League. And Danny, I'm just wondering, at a Premier League level now, where for the vast majority of clubs, managers are going after two seasons on average, players are coming and going every kind of six months to a year in the transfer window. Is is it possible to kind of create that that kind of culture? Uh, well, it's funny because when Misha was speaking, I was kind of thinking, yeah, it sounds like utopia and maybe I can get a job at Wickham. <laughs> uh, but... Um, I feel That's what like... this show's all about, Danny, connect, <laughs> connecting people. <laughs> but I was also thinking like, you know, it depends what you want as an organisation. So I think Chelsea is probably the other end of the spectrum where they have a manager for a season or less and then they fire him, but they are still successful. So how does that work as well? And I was thinking, you know, uh, in the Premier League, for example, if a manager lost seven games, he'd be out. And with that comes a whole change of culture And what Misha was saying earlier about the culture of a a club and the organisation, how it's so important, I totally agree with. Um, And I think that clubs have tried to remedy that by um, employing directors of football, sporting directors. Um, But I feel that at the moment, the the power dynamic is still there and the manager holds all of the power. Mm -hmm. This is just because of tradition in England. And I think it, it might slowly change. Um, but I, I'm not sure whether it will. A couple of weeks ago, I went to uh, visit Carlo Ancelotti in Real Madrid, and he um, they're top of the league. They were top of the league by two points. They were playing at home against Real Vallecano, and they, they won the game quite easily, but you could feel the tension in the stadium, and, and speaking to Carlo before and after the game, he felt quite anxious about the fact that they needed to win. They have to win every game, and and from his perspective, you know, he can't afford to look at the long-term structure and culture of the club because it just it's impossible for him to do that. So I think, yeah, if, if it could be done at a Premier League club, it would need to be um, collaborative and a lot of joined-together thinking. Um, and as Misha said, it's easier to do in a smaller-scale organisation, but Premier League clubs now are huge organisations with lots of different parts. And it's a real challenge to get that. I don't think people actively work on culture. I think they just sort of assume it is going to evolve, which I think is half the problem. If you want cultural architects, then you have to embed them in places. And they they might not be the manager <laughs> because of, yeah. of the systems. But who who is creating that? Who is Who has a voice to also say, hang on a minute, I think we're going off piste here. And I guess that was that was the joy for me at Wickham, which was I was feeling it going away from who we were and what we stood for and was able to have a voice and, and do something about it. But um, it fundamentally, it's like a new manager comes in and the club goes, OK, over to you then, off you go, which is a little bit naive on their part, I think, in terms of how do you how do you want this to work? What does this look like? Why Why do you have players? And the assumption is, well, we'll have the best players, but do the best players, are they able to work together? Do, do their values align? Do they have those, um, have they bought into the culture? Do they even know what the culture is, you know, or are they just separated from that? So whilst the fans are embedded in the culture and invest an awful lot and have a huge identity connection with the team that they support, is that true of players? Maybe, maybe not. That leads quite nicely into in, into our next topic for today, really, which is kind of got half an eye on the fact that the January transfer window is not too far away. Number of clubs in the Premier League have got new managers who, who I'm sure will be keen to kind of get get the players in that are going to buy into their vision and, and the way they want to do things. The highest profile of those being Newcastle, uh, given the influx of money that they've now got. I suppose just building on that point there, Misha, is that something clubs focusing more on now so you know when you're scouting players it's important to understand you know whether they've got the technical abilities things like that but uh, are clubs also interested in personalities as well in terms of how that's going to fit into the group dynamic that they're trying to build 
I don't know is the honest answer to that. I can only know of the people that I've worked with and been around and maybe in some situations, yes, and some no. I mean, not to be boring about Wickham, but at Wickham, definitely yes. You know, it's like, who is this person? Because this person is important in this environment. You know, we have we have really naive notions about people, you know, and, we, and we, we're very reductionist and simplistic and we go, X player costs X amount, therefore he's got to be delivering this. Well, hang on a minute, that's that's ridiculous. We, d- we don't think about how they're going to work in the environment. I mean, you know, Daniel, you talk about the, the, the range of people from different countries with different cultures, with different backgrounds. You know, sometimes it, it doesn't feel comfortable to people. And if you're not feeling comfortable, if you're not feeling valued, if you're not feeling part or connected to something, that will leak on the pitch when you're playing. Un- undoubtedly, it will. Um, so... What questions are people asking when they recruit players? Not sure. Yeah, I, I think um, it's a completely under underused um, resource, and I think that the question is how you how you actually do that as well. And I think you know David Moyes, for example, when he was at Everton, he did a lot of research into the players, and he would go and watch the player personally five or six times. He'd watch how he warmed up. He, mm. he'd, find out about his family situation yeah uh, where, where the player had come from um and i think that ha- that goes a long way to trying to assimilate new players into your squad yeah. um and and at the same time you said luke that you know uh, how, how are they going to fit into the dynamic i think ultimately you never know how they're going to fit into the dynamic until they come in although it, it is important to do the research yeah, and, and what I was saying about the different cultures, you know, at Everton, there's there's groups of players who speak French, there's groups of players who speak English, groups of players who speak Spanish, Portuguese, mm-hmm. um, and, and it's a real challenge to bring all of those different languages, yeah. the language is the big, big one, um, together. And, and as Misha said earlier, you need different kind of cultural architects to br- help bring that all together and bring the best out of those people. Um, but in terms of kind of looking into the, the psychological characteristics of the players, I think I think it's a really big thing um, that needs needs to be done more. And like we use so much data, as Misha was saying about players, when we look into buying them, you know, how quickly do they run, how many runs do they do, all that kind of stuff. Um, but the, the core psychological principles that they don't really look at at all. Yeah, we don't, we don't ask a really simple question, which is, who, who are you? Who, who is this person? You know, when I'm working as a psychologist, my primary aim is I need to know who I'm in the room with, who's in the room with me. And once I can understand who you are and see the world from your, your perspective, then two things happen. One, the person feels like they're being heard and being understood. And secondly, I'm more likely to be able to understand how they might navigate through different situations. So, you know, football's gone data mad, really. I mean, the amount of numbers that get produced, it's huge. Um, but no one's asking them, how do, how do they feel? It's a really interesting topic. And, and actually, the, there's, a, there's, there's an article that, that I'm writing at the moment that's going to kind of focus on on this uh, and there's, there's kind of two elements in particular I think that, that clubs are starting to look at so at, uh, at Wickham we've spoken to Richard Dobson about this before Misha and he's been really candid about this uh, in saying that uh, he will take personal responsibility for for monitoring a player's social media output uh, uh, in, in really comprehensive detail to, to try and understand well, what is their personality like away from a particular situation? What are they actually saying? What do they actually feel like? So there's 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 that element, and I think clubs are are starting to to look at that. Uh, and then interestingly, there's some some work going on at the moment that's kind of being led, certainly kind of led in terms of the work, the the, the kind of activity in the field by a Norwegian called Guy Jordet, um, who is looking is looking at scanning. Um, so looking at, at scanning frequencies uh, as a kind of proxy for for kind of players' ability. He's looking to- at yeah, he's looking at cognitive cognitive decision making and all that. But 
but he's still not asking the feeling question. Very, no, that's a really fair point. Yeah, yeah, it's a really <laughs> you know, fair point. See, it, it, it's, he's producing, he's giving you different numbers, but they're simply about behaviours. How many times do I do this? Yeah. I mean, listen, his work is really important, and I think it's really useful in terms of how you teach players and actually that we need to teach scanning behaviours early on because what, what he's basically saying is that this is an indicative, this is an indicator of success. The more you can scan, the more you can do this. So I, I've read his work and his work is good, really good work. Um, and, and it's funny, um, I, was, I was talking with um, a player, just uh, no, no, a member of staff before the game. His, his degree was in physics and, he, and he's going, I'm going, so you're doing the numbers and I'm doing the feelings. And I went, I'm off to watch the players to do the feelings. And, and, <laughs> and, and he didn't quite get it. Do you know what I mean? But, but, if, um, but we have to have both. We have to have the numbers, but we have to have the feelings. And I think at the moment, we assume that the numbers are telling us something, that that's the only thing of importance. And Guy was actually, he, he's a kind of pains to point this out, and he was saying that he has, and, and you know, he, he was kind of holding this up as an example of how not to do it. He was saying he has heard of clubs that uh, are making decisions transfer decisions purely based on scanning data and he was saying this is you know he was saying when we were having this chat this is one part it's of just this part, is exactly process. it's part yeah. it's part of the jigsaw isn't it, it yeah. it's part of the understanding of who who the person is i think you know right right at the beginning daniel you spoke about the stigma attached to psychologists and i think part of the problem is i haven't got a number to give you you know, I haven't got a piece of data that goes, OK, you know, if you watched me work, you, you, you might be surprised at what I do. You know, I'm in and around the gym. I'll drop a little bit in here. I'll have a little conversation over there and I will watch for the impact of that. Now, nobody's going to know that apart from me well, and the player, you know, and it might be, oh, try try communicating this in this way. You might find it lands more or how are you doing from Saturday? Is it all right? You know, it's like I'm, I'm asking those questions because I know that if we don't have those, if we don't have those conversations around emotional sticking points. So, for example, I talk to players who don't play a lot because actually they can change the emotional landscape really quickly if they're coming with resentment or they're coming with uncertainty about themselves, and that can sh- that can change it everywhere so I, I I do emotional well I call it emotional barometer checking and I that's what I do on a Monday after the weekend I'm going in t- t- just noticing having an awareness yeah that happened and make sure I check up with that person but I can't give you a number I'm afraid yeah I, I think that's <laughs> a really important point what you, you just made about players who aren't playing in the squad because I feel like uh, you know, any any member of a group is going to have a big impact on a group. And quite often those members of the group can be completely ignored by the manager. Yeah. Yep. And it's the same with injured players. You know, I've worked mm-hmm. with uh, a few managers who actually um, won't even acknowledge an injured player when they walk past them. That's awful. awful. Uh, yeah, it's incredible. Um, but the, the same is true of players who aren't playing. And I think mm-hmm. if you can do that um, for those players, it's a huge service to them. Because quite often those players, understandably, can get into a negative, um, downward psychological spiral, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and that and that impacts the whole the whole of the group, no doubt about it. Um, but I, I also accept and and see quite clearly what you're saying that what what you're doing it's not measurable, um, and for that reason, it's quite often not valued yep. in our society and in, in our sports, and definitely in football. But I, I think that those kind of um, interventions are incredibly powerful. Mm. They're, they're, they're subtle and they're small. You know, I, I, I don't do, and, and some of this is, is also true. It's like, where do sports psychologists live? You know, so I don't live in an office. Now, some psychologists might live in an office and I'm going, if you're in an office, you're not doing the job. I, I, I'm in the gym. I'm definitely at the side of the pitch. I'm in and around the changing room. I'm, you know, I'm in the canteen. I'm, I'm in those spaces that players live in. Sometimes, of course, we need to have a private space because we need to have conversations that are 
that are confidential in nature and they need to feel that support. Absolutely, we need to do that. But some of those other things are just sprinkles, just noticing or reinforcing. You know, I might have had a conversation about um, slight change in behavior. So a, a behavior that might be, how can you show assertiveness? How can you own that? How can you change your body language? And if they did it on Saturday, I want to go and reinforce it. So I'll go, oh, I noticed that you did this, this and this. And it might be things that no one else notices. But the fact that I've noticed and it's been valued and it's like it will be that um, that player is more likely to do that in the future. Or I might say to a coach, could you go and say? So I work with coaches as well. So sometimes I'm the conduit for the message, but sometimes they are. But they, but again, that's about the working relationship that I have. And I might go, could you just check in with so-and-so? Or do you remember this happened? That was really important. Could you just acknowledge it? So, yeah, I kind of, <laughs> I work through people as well, which is um, because sometimes my voice isn't the most important voice. I recognize that. And if, if the message comes from a coach, then sometimes it can be way more impactful. And that's the right way to have that conversation. Yeah, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, coaches and managers, um, quite often it's a really lonely place that they are in, especially managers. Yeah. And, and I feel like, you know, to be able to support them and to help them psychologically is a massive thing. And that they don't really get any or they don't get a lot of psychological training. So in, in terms of like observing behaviors and how you can impact behaviors, they don't get that. No. So to be able to help them in that way, again, is huge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, it, and it only happens if I'm, if someone goes, yeah, okay, I'm going to trust you. Danny, out, out of interest, we, you touched on Carlo Ancelotti earlier. And uh, we, we had uh, a former colleague of, of Carlo's, uh, Bruno Di Michaelis, on, on the show. Yeah, um, listen to it. It's good. Really good. Yeah, he's a great, he's a, what a character. What a, <laughs> what, what a character. Uh, and he was saying that, you know, he's worked with, you know, Fabio Capello, Rigo Zaki, and Ancelotti. And he was saying that common denominator there is that they, they were all really interested in learning the, the discipline of psychology. He said that, you know, that they wanted his, his kind of teachers. And I just want Danny, you know, from your kind of experience, were there kind of other managers that, that you've worked for that were kind of, kind of similar to, to that, you know, in their approach to psychology? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, Carlo's quite a unique guy. He's um, like, he's an incredible man, you know, to be able to, I think, um, what I was saying earlier about being able to like live with the projections. So the projections from the the owner, the, the fans and the players when you're not picking them, I think it's a really difficult thing to do. And I, I feel like Carlo does that incredibly well. He's able to manage those projections and and still and still be a really good human being and caring human being. Mm. Um, and, and it's a rare quality that difficult to walk that line isn't it very very hard yeah and I, and I, you know everyone has a, their unique um story and history and i think his history of being a great player and everything he went through in his, his younger life uh, contributes to who he is and, and how he can manage that um I, the other manager that um in terms of psychology that i thought was really open and, and really good was david Moyes, and, and mm. he always had a mindset of wanting to improve every season so we'd sit down at the end of the season i think we would work together for 12 years and you know you need to keep it fresh you need to keep motivating players you need to inspire players so at the end of the season we'd sit down and say right what can we do better what can we do differently yeah. to to bring the players on because we had we had probably um, a, a core group of players for that time period, and we needed to challenge them, needed to take them to the next level. And David Moyes was would do anything really um, where where he he thought that we could in, improve their performance, and 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 not only improve their performance, but make them um, better people, and mm. and you know and enjoy their lives at the same time. And and it's all really important. And I think, uh, John, you mentioned earlier that the story about Sadhguru, um, <laughs> he, when he came into Everton, that, that was a stretch for David Moyes because when I, when I went to ask him whether this Indian guru could come in and speak to the players, he said to me, um, as long as he's not like the Dalai Lama, 
I'm not sure what he meant by that, but in my mind, I'm thinking he's a lot worse than the Dalai Lama because he's got his long beard and he was worse. But he was able to allow that to happen. Um, and, you know, that had, that had a big impact on players. And when Misha was speaking earlier, it made me think as well, sometimes as a psychologist or as anything, um, you have a conversation with somebody, with a player, and you don't realize the significance that that can have in the future. You can, you can lay a seed for them that in many years um, has a, a massive outcome. And I, I, was, I read a book from one of the old players um, who I worked with yesterday, and in it he mentioned the conversation that we'd had, and it had a big impact on him. And to be honest, I couldn't even remember the conversation. Um, so, you know, it just shows you that the power, but the importance of being there, Mm -hmm. um, for the players and the staff and the manager, um, in these situations that can be very stressful. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, is that, you know, we're all people too, living and breathing in that environment. Um, and, and, and sometimes it's like where we have to, we have to do some self care, (laughs) Because we can't, we can't constantly absorb, 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 absorb without it actually impacting on our on our well being. So, um, how we support each other as people, and and again, this comes back to culture, isn't it? Is what do you have a culture where people are are they're, they're in conflict? People are stabbing people in the back. People are are you know doing all of that stuff, or, or do you have a culture where people are supportive of each other? And it and it's hard. Um, when you have a core of people that are constantly changing, but then there's lots of other people at the club that are, as you were, Daniel, how long, you know, you were there for many, many, many years. So you are like, you were probably one of the cultural architects without realising that you were because of your longevity. And so, you know, a new manager comes into the club, you know far more about the club than they do. And some people will have sought you out to, to ask you and some people will not have done. So those things about how we, how we look after everyone within this really challenging environment, it's challenging living in elite sport. It's challenging. And I think if we, if we have that as our starting point, um, then maybe, maybe we can do things in, in a different way. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Uh, one of the things that came to my mind about uh, living in elite sport is the you know the all the the complete nature of it the fact that you're there all the time mm-hmm. and i was reading some uh, research the other day about having a, a sport only identity yeah and that's something that i've been really you know I, i've recognized that from a young age and i've always tried to encourage players to broaden their horizons broaden their experience and and just to try and live a more fully well-rounded life which is really difficult when you when you working in, and living and playing in elite sport. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, and certainly that's one of the, you know, bits of work when I was at QPR and I was working in the academy and working with parents. I, I did a session on strength-based parenting and, and I remember asking the parents in the group, okay, I want you to tell me things that you value about your son. You're not allowed to say football. And actually some of the people in the room struggled to find other strengths in their and generally it was the dads i have to say but it's like well you're you're not valuing your son for this amazing person that he is so again that sport identity we learn it early and we're only appreciated for that then doing it later on becomes much harder and also it becomes a lot harder when you have to leave when that's taken away from you through retirement through injury possibly or through rejection so I, I agree with you, Daniel. I think, I think we have to think more holistically. It's like you can do many things and, and, and there's this and there's other bits of you as well. And they're, they're all equally important. And, and we, we see all those parts of you and we, yes. and we love and respect all those parts of you. And we don't love you because you're good at playing football. Yes, beautiful, beautifully said. I mean, beautifully said. Yeah. One of the things we've established today is that obviously, you know, football and elite sport in general, as you said, Misha, is a challenging environment. So I suppose enduring in that environment and, and uh, delivering longevity in that environment, it, it takes a very special kind of individual to do that. Uh, a player that's been getting a lot of plaudits over the last week is Thiago Silva at Chelsea, who's obviously, you know, in the twilight of his career, but some people are talking about him performing as, as well as he ever has. 
what are the characteristics of that professional to kind of endure in the sport and, and deliver performances once they're past their kind of so-called peak age? I think John mentioned earlier, speaking about Carlo, uh, he, he, he said that he's interested in psychology and always learning. And I think that's true of, of anyone, really. And all of the players that I've worked with who are in a, a similar kind of category to Thiago Silva have had that desire to learn and get better. And their, and their football intelligence has improved as, they, as they've got older. The, the other thing that I feel is really important is the motivation, the passion. So I worked with John Terry at Aston Villa when he was at the end of his career. And <laughs> he was the most competitive person i've ever met in my life <laughs> competitive with everything i was i was walking through a door with him and he walked in front of me so he beat me to walking through the door <laughs> <laughs> but he you know players at that age they've got so much money so they don't they don't need money that they can live a comfortable life so they've got to have a deep intrinsic motivation and passion for the game and and that is so important yeah, it's about finding your why, finding your purpose, making things purposeful. And I think the reasons of the why shift and change um, and learning how to do things differently, certainly how you pull all of that experience together. Uh, I mean, it's, it's funny, I was watching a player, I was watching training and there was a more experienced player, uh, a defender, and he, he just used his voice so beautifully to pull some of these youngsters around the place that actually he didn't have to do very much, but it solved all the problem. But he, so he, he was just, he knew exactly where other people needed to be and, you know, playing with sort of 19, 20 year olds. But, but it was like, yeah, you, I, I know exactly what I'm doing here. So, so doing it differently. And that's the thing about accepting that you are not 19 anymore, but you come with all sorts of other things which are powerful, useful. And if you come with openness and curiosity and, and that thing about moving forwards and learning and changing, then you're always going to be engaged in what you do. Uh, and I think that that's, that's what's important as well. Find your why. You know, why am I doing this? If we, if we don't have why, we don't have meaning, then we're not really going to be able to bring our best. Free time out, Daniel. I was going to Go say, is that, is, that what, is, that, is that kind of what you've been spending the last few weeks pondering? or is that, is that... <laughs> I've been spending my whole life pondering that. <laughs> don't but we you're all? doing it with openness and curiosity. <laughs> Look at you. You're doing it beautifully. <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to add uh, briefly, um, you know, another thing about longevity is players have to be resilient physically because I've worked with a number of players that have had so many injuries throughout their career. It, it becomes unmanageable psychologically. You can't, yeah. be, you can't play, you can't perform. It's a really difficult thing to go through and it's understandable how they, they, they can't play to those older ages. Yeah, and again, and that's that's if we don't value them for who they are as people, that makes that journey so much harder because then it's like if I can't play who am I? And they literally have no sense of self, no sense of 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 their value. Yeah, I'm gonna um I'm gonna get a job at Wickham, John, to answer your question. I've decided <laughs> <laughs> Come on down, come on down, join join, join the party. <laughs> I, 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 I fear we're gonna have to rename this this podcast the kind of the, the Wickham Appreciation Society yeah. podcast way, the way it's going. Yeah. Um guys, I mean thanks both for, for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um Danny, best of best of luck in kind of what whatever um the future holds whether it's adams park or, or somewhere else um misha great great to have you back on and um yeah i hope things continue to go well at wickham um and luke and i will be back um in a couple of weeks um really looking forward to welcoming um mark jones and andy hill um to the show so um we will see you then 